There are only so many good places to plant things. How many gardeners do I have out there? Yeah, some, few, okay. Uh, flower gardeners? Yeah, vegetables? Okay, okay, a little more eagerness for the vegetables. I get it, it's that time of year. Man, uh, around our house, so there's four sides to the house. The goal is you put gardens all the way around it. Some are full sun, some are not full sun. Uh, some get a little soggy, some are draining well. It's really not as simple as the people at the garden. People are like, yeah, just put them in the ground, no big deal, you can do it. It's more complicated, and I get the complication, but I'm pretty sure the people that landscaped the front of our house skipped all of those evaluative steps. Here's why. There are hydrangeas in the front of our house that puzzled and frustrated us for the first couple of years, mostly my wife as she was trying to make them work and she's like, these are not doing what they're supposed to. They have very few blooms on them despite doing all the things that we thought we should be doing. But do you know where the blooms were? Not on the front. They were on the back. I mean, you plant it in the front of your house. For those of you who don't know what a hydrangea is, it's like, oh, I don't know, like, like this tall, it gets big bushy, you know, it's kind of this big green poof. And the idea is that it has these other big colorful poofs on the front of it. However, all the colorful poofs were on the back which does not help. If I wanted a green thing on the front of our house, we'd have planted something else. We wanted something colorful. So, uh, it wasn't until we discovered one little detail that made it all make sense. No amount of fertilizer or whatever else could make a difference when you trim it, all that. What it needs is morning sun and afternoon shade. Guess what it didn't have? Shade. <laughs> Guess where there was afternoon shade? on the back. <laughs> Less than ideal, but it did its best, and it bloomed where it planted, where it was planted. On the upside, because it did bloom, because it didn't just like give up and be like, hey, I'm a hydrangea and you planted me in the wrong spot, so I'm not doing anything here. Instead, it did the best that it could and gave us some flowers. It actually led us to like clip some of the hydrangea blossoms from the back and bring them inside so that more than just like the wall of our house could enjoy them. And it actually led us to uh, clip some more of the flowers from around uh, our house as well and put them into a beautiful bouquet that let us like just awe while we're sitting at dinner at all the beautiful things in our yard. And honestly, I don't get there out to see them as often as I probably should. Sorry, Rachel. <laughs> uh, but as she brought them in and saw them all, they're like, holy smokes, look at all these beautiful flowers that you are growing out there. And so, because one hydrangea that was misplaced did the best that it could to blossom where it was planted, all the flowers in the yard were even more appreciated, and all my wife's hard work was even more uh, held up just because one hydrangea bloomed where it was planted. In First Peter today, uh, the letter that we've been encouraging you to read over the past couple weeks, you're going to hear more about blooming where you're planted. And I'm going to encourage you to embrace a similar posture as that hydrangea in the front of our house that's largely in full sun and bloom where you're planted. For in our world, we've got a, no ideal places to be planted. Our world is broken, but when we do bloom where God plants us, the blessings extend well beyond us in a way that only God could have foreseen or orchestrated. And it's to this that we've been called. 
So let's take a look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Please open your Bible now, whether it's a digital one or you grab the the paper Bible in front of you there. Uh, They're in the rack. Please get it out or look off the person next to you so you can read along. There'll be chunks that we'll be reading together. Just curious as you're uh, getting those things out, how many of you knew what the readings were for this week to read like ahead of church? Very good. A few of you, yes. How many of you did the readings ahead of church? Good. Most of you that knew it. Very good. Well done. Well, if not, worry not. We'll get you caught up here. Uh, But maybe can I encourage you to read it again later today or on Monday so that the, the 20 or some minutes that you invest here can have even greater mileage for you and for the kingdom. Also, keep an eye out on HC. Uh, community, our private Facebook group, as well as the Instagram from Holy Cross to look for next week's readings and the details for that. But 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 is where we start today. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I'm going to pause there. Now, while there is no therefore at the beginning of this section, this is definitely a new section thematically. Up till now, in the, the book of uh, 1 Peter, we've heard general encouragements, general theology, uh, and very little, uh, like, uh, let me help you apply this kind of thing. And now, we're going to get all into all the specific applications, very specific instructions on how to practice living like Jesus and trusting in God in actual life situations. And the focus initially is on how we live as sojourners and those who who have this inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade or get traded for a fifth wheel. If you know what I'm talking about, watch the sermon from last week. It's on holycrossgenison.org. We have this inheritance and we are these sojourners and what this looks like as we live among people who are not yet believers. So that's the plan uh, for today. And specifically, we're talking about what this looks like, what living as a sojourner looks like with the sister or aunt or uncle or coworker or parent or child who's unaware of God's kingdom or resistant to God's kingdom or, or even actively against faith in Jesus. And, and I want to help you make this really practical today, for that's what Peter's uh, trying to do, help them apply these things. So I'm going to give you five seconds in just a moment, and I want you to come up with a face and a name of somebody who doesn't yet know Jesus, that doesn't, isn't actively trusting in Jesus right now in their life. Go, face and a name. Now that you got it, if you want to write it down, feel free to do that. But, but hold this face and this name in your mind as we talk about our way through 1 Peter. For this person or, or someone that's in a similar spiritual state as the one that you have uh, brought to mind is the one that the Holy Spirit wants to teach you about today through these words of Peter. Now, these first two verses are a pretty good summary of what's to come, so our plan is to try to understand those and how he applied it in his day. And once we've got that, then we can try to figure out how to apply it to our lives so we're not uh, mixing things up or or misunderstanding things. There's a lot of details to walk through, but walk with me and we'll get you there. So verse 11 is where we begin. We are aliens and strangers in the world. Uh, Pastor Brian has talked about that as we are sojourners, people that are 
away from our home. Uh, just before it, if you look a couple verses just before that, 1 Peter 2, verse 9, it describes what kind of people we are, that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we're different for a purpose. We're, we're chosen. We're, we're set aside for something significant people so that we can show God to the world. Or, I like to boil it down even further. Like, you've got something so that you can give something. You are something so that you can do something. Since you, this world is not your home, don't live like locals. Not when in Rome, act like the Romans. Here, don't live like locals because this isn't your home. And this is what it's described in 11 and 12. Number one, it says, abstain from sinful desires, which war against your soul. And two, live such good lives among the pagans, those people who are not yet believers in Jesus. And though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So let's break down those two things. Number one, uh, so if you're taking notes, like here, what does he want us to do? Number one is this, don't just avoid sinful actions, but also sinful desires. In fact, it's stronger than that. It says continually keep away from sinful desires. Now, this maybe pushes in the face of what you thought, how, how the world works. Like, I have temptations and I can't avoid that. When we pray in the, in the Lord's Prayer, uh, like, lead us not into temptation. Like, they're all around us and coming at us. And I feel like sometimes we misunderstand what's happening there. And that we think that, like, all of our desires and all the feelings that come along with that are just a part of who we are rather than something that is happening to us. And the encouragement here is don't just, don't, don't let yourself indulge sinful desires. Always keep moving away from them. Always keep away from uh, even leaning into them a little bit. And we wouldn't be commanded this if it wasn't possible. We sometimes think we are victims of our inward desires, like that we are our desires, that we are our feelings, and we can't help it. But the reality is this. We have desires. We have feelings. They aren't us. So we have to hold them at arm's length and identify what they are and decide, are these sinful or are these God-pleasing? And if they are sinful, then they are like cancer warring against our soul if we even lean into them just a little bit. They are not neutral. Oh, let me be really specific. Like, desires to remain resentful for someone that's hurt you in the past or continue to be unforgiving, like just the desire to do that wars against your soul. The desire to be selfish or to turn away from God and his provision and not look to that. Even the, the thought of those things is warring against your soul continually, which is why we must continually avoid those things. I mean, it seems maybe momentarily attractive or even entirely harmless because like, well, I'm just thinking about it. I'm not actually doing it yet, but that's the lie. They make you spiritually weak and ineffective to live as chosen people if we even just begin to lean into those things. So that's number one. Live uh, in, a, in a way that abstains from sinful desires. And number two, uh, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, I want to explain to you the picture that's, uh, that's being given here about the day 
of visitation. It talks about, depending on which translation uh, you get. Now, this is not like the visit on the last time, like the, the final visit when, when we'll be judged, but rather it is a visit. You go in the original language, there is, it doesn't say the visit, so it leaves it open for the kind of visits that God does all throughout it. We see him uh, popping into people's lives and blessing them and caring for them all throughout the Old Testament and uh, throughout the New Testament, uh, miracles happening, all this kind of stuff. So God can come sometimes for judgment, but also sometimes for blessing. And it seems what's in view here is blessing because uh, it's the, the blessing of a not yet Christian coming to faith based on the seeing how a Christian lives their lives. So that's how we're going to take this. And this is the vision that we're giving. So this picture sets expectations for us. You can have the expectation. God, in fact, is calling us to, in fact, inviting us to pray that these expectations be fulfilled, that that our God will bring not yet believers to faith by means of your good deeds. In fact, if you read ahead to 1 Peter uh, 3, uh, verses 1 and 2, it gives the example of within a marriage that an unbelieving husband could come to faith through the believing wife's conduct just by her actions. So it sets that expectation, but it also sets the expectation that as sojourners, as ones who are not locals, this is not our home, that even though we do the right things, we're probably going to be treated wrongly. That even in conditions that are less than ideal, we're to bloom where we're planted. And when we do, God will work through us to influence those around us so they too join the ranks of blooming where they're planted and are chosen sojourners along with us. Not much you when I when I first read this, I think like I feel like I've been doing okay at this, but I don't necessarily uh, see this. Like what am what am I missing? Where does this work? How does this go? Thankfully, he gets really specific uh, with a couple examples that we're going to go through next. Initially, two examples are offered, and really I see both of these as opportunities to bloom where you're planted, and they're they're both in the same vein. It's blooming where you're planted, even though or in the places where you're subject to authorities in your life as it is. And the two examples are a citizen's relationship to government authorities and a servant or slave's relationship to his master. So let's read these through and then we'll talk about them. If you've got your own Bible with you, I encourage you to get out your pen or pencil because there's places I'd love for you to underline as you go along. Verse 13 is where we're starting. First Peter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves, and then underline, for the Lord's sake. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. This is kind of like big picture, and then here's the two examples. Number one, whether to the the king is supreme authority or governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For, and underline this too, this whole verse 15. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. How amazing is that? Now, continuing, verse 16. Live as free men, But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants or slaves of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. So that's part number one, citizens to established authorities. Two, slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering, and underline this, because he is conscious of God. 
bearing unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. This is commendable. Verse 20, uh, but how is it credit to you if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable to God. And you can underline all of verse 21 here. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. Now, I don't know about you, when I first read this, I felt like I could get lost in the weeds real quick here. So I just want to attend to some of the questions that might come up. I feel like I had questions about just and unjust governments, uh, civil disobedience, when is it wise to do these things, uh, how do I faithfully do that? I feel like I also could easily get caught in the gut-level reaction to the mention of slavery. Because here in America, our first thought as we think of slavery is our own context. And honestly, the atrocity that slavery uh, was and the effects of how that has uh, spiraled out even into things uh, today. And you could get the impression that God is saying here that he condones the mistreatment of people or the oppression of people. Let me just speak to this so that we can uh, set those things aside and hear what God really wants us to hear and not hear what he doesn't intend. Number one, just to understand context-wise, the slavery here is not the same kind of slavery as it was in America. This is far closer to like a semi-permanent employee without legal or economic freedom currently. Uh, These are not people likely that were kidnapped uh, and brought into slavery, but more likely people that were born into it and would work their way out of it. But currently they're in a spot where they're in it. Uh, So here it may be more in light of an employee-employer relationship, though that really wasn't the case. They were there until they were done working. Uh, Also, in both of these situations, people are being encouraged to live as sojourners in incredibly regrettable situations, beyond regrettable. That's that's not strong enough. Uh, Because they are in positions without power or influence to change it. So those questions of civil disobedience or standing up for yourself are not options, therefore they are not addressed. The matter at hand is, if this is where God has planted you for now, how do I live as a sojourner in that place? How do I live as a sojourner among non-Christians in that place? And the answer that we're given is by being the best citizen and the best servant or slave that you can be. That that even when the master provides poor working conditions or dishonest wages, even when the government is doing things that you disagree with, unless they're directing you to sin, you're called to not just avoid sinful actions, but continually avoid sinful desires connected to that. And as you live this way in deference uh, in uh, compliance to those things, your temporary life can lead the unbelievers around you to have eternal life along with you. But if this is going to happen, how you do it matters. The part that we didn't read yet is about how Jesus Christ suffered. See, God is pleased when people trust him in the midst of suffering and mistreatment, when they do it imitating the example of Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to, verse 21. You were called because Jesus Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. My friends, the example of Jesus' suffering 
is not an example of uh, German or Dutch tenacity, like, ah, I'm just going to dig in and make it happen. I can do this. They're not going to stop me. It's not that. It's, it's not, not quite that bold at all, not bold that way. It's far more humble and accepting. Uh, it's a confidence that God will ultimately right all the wrongs, that God will ultimately make all things right in the end. It's a posture of your heart that says he is going to care for the rights that have been trampled. This is the unjust suffering because you're conscious of God that we underlined in verse 19. His example is patience in, patient endurance while suffering, oh, while trusting in God. Go back up to verse 13, and we underlined, uh, for the Lord's sake. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority. Any of this entrusting that happens, any of this uh, submitting, those words are used similarly. I feel like entrusting actually better describes what's happening here uh, rather than submit, which carries some other connotations. So here, uh, entrusting. Any sort of entrusting is out of our trust in God, not trust in the person in those positions, nor in the institution itself. We entrust ourselves to the institutions in place and to the authorities that, that care for us and to the people that are responsible to us because we trust in God, not because we trust the person particularly. That's what we're called to. Because this is what Jesus did. Submitting himself, entrusting himself was his posture when he trusted the Father, when he went to the garden and said, Lord, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to go to the cross. Can you take this away from me? And he says, but not my will, but yours be done. He was treated unjustly for you. He was harmed greatly for you, for us. But see that how he lived his life, how he did his suffering, is now getting you eternal life. Now the same opportunity is being given to us. This is what we're called to. Friends, this doesn't save us. Jesus did that, but it can be a part of how God saves the people who don't yet know Jesus that are around you. So what should you do? Whatever Jesus would. If he were living your life, if, if he were in your marriage, if he were in your job, if he were parenting your children, if he were caring for your aging parents, if, if he were dealing with your friends or your bad situations or, or your uh, financial uh, inabilities or, or your struggle to get education or your all kinds of things where you're in places where you don't have all that you want, where it's less than ideal. But there, you bloom where you're planted. Now to today, 21st century Americans in West Michigan, where slavery is far less common and visible, and governments are not like Roman autocracy, there is still ways to live in this, for God has still established authorities, legitimate human authorities, where, where there are people within our society that have been given particular responsibilities for the sake of the care of others and for the sake of orderly functioning, which then allows us to strive, the, or, excuse me, to thrive. These are good things. Because if everyone is in charge of themselves and does what they think is best for themselves, we are far worse off. Like even a household with four or five people, everybody doing their own thing doesn't work. It doesn't work on a macro size either. 
And look, like, like even within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is order and defined relationships. Uh, don't think that, that order and authority and responsibilities for one another and entrusting yourself to the care of another is something that's just because sin came into the world. It's actually a good thing that's part of how God ideally designed his relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so it's also built into the fabric of our society. It's God's good design of people having different responsibilities for others. This is pleasing to God. So there's things like parent and child. There's church officers and members. There's uh, authorities in businesses. There's authorities in, in educational institutions. Like there's a board of education that oversees things that we entrust ourselves to the decisions that they make. There, there is uh, care that happens as husbands and wives have responsibilities to one another. But as, as those invested vested with care for other responsibilities. We'll just take a few, like a parent and a church officer or a board of education or a husband. As they strive to fulfill their responsibilities in ways that honor God, sometimes they're going to nail it, and oftentimes they won't. And what's in view is the child, the member of the church, the employee, the student, the wife that is living as a sojourner under the neglectful care or crooked leadership of the one that was supposed to be responsible to them. And Peter says, to this you've been called. When you are in a place of unjust suffering, not that you should aim for this, but rather when this is where you're planted, you're called to depend on God and not yourself. You're called to trust that God can and will ultimately right all wrongs so you don't need to. You can and you should repeatedly and continually entrust this situation into God's hands and then the unbelievers around you will see your good deeds and in time come to trust God as well because of the trust that you have embodied right before their eyes. Let me be clear. This isn't condoning or whitewashing injustice or neglect or poor care or anything of the sort where you have opportunity and influence and power to work for better situations for yourself or for others. To this you are called as well. But that's a different sermon and not what this text is about. What's in view here are the situations that can't be changed or the situations that you're in the midst of now while you're striving for change and improvement. In the midst of these places, and especially as you live alongside that person whose name and face you brought to mind before, that I venture to encourage you to consider that, that God brought to your mind before, for he is intervening. He is coming to bring blessing in this world. We are empowered to, and we get to continue in those places, abstaining from sinful desires, abstaining from the resentment that we could feel, abstaining from the rebelliousness, abstaining from the, the selfishness or the despair that we might find ourselves in, and instead trusting God that while we suffer in the less than ideal places that he's planted us, that through that expression of trust, he'll, believe, he'll bring unbelievers to belief through us. Let's pray that he would do that. God, we long for the day when we are planted in an ideal place, where we're each planted in a place that helps us thrive, but while we're planted in a place that's less than ideal, help us to bloom right where we are. 
Help us to trust that even while we don't yet see your provision, that we still trust in you so that others would see you through us and come to trust in your ultimate providing as well. Lord, we know you will do this. Help us live like we believe it. Help us keep saying, man, Lord, this is hard, but I know you got me. To God be the glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.